Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I'm proud to be a part of the Coffee Clutch team. On School Struggles, we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, ADHD, and a whole host of other interesting topics that affect your child. By way of introduction, I am a child psychologist and the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is part of the Department of Pediatrics, Cooper University Healthcare, and we're located in Voorhees, New Jersey, outside of the Philadelphia area. I am the author of three books, the first one being The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child. The second is School Struggles, and my latest is Dyslexia Screening, Essential Concepts for Schools and Parents, and these are all available on Amazon or Barnes and & Nobles, and you can find them on my website, www.shutdownlearner.com. That site is loaded with blogs and a lot of great information for parents, a lot of free stuff there for you guys to get. Um, so t- I'm excited to have... Uh, Jesse Berg as my guest. I've known Jesse for a number of years. Um, he's a passionate educator. Uh, let me read his bio to you. Jesse Berg is an accomplished teacher, instructional coach, educational technologist, and speaker. Jesse Berg's mission is to improve teaching and learning through visual thinking strategies that make complex cognitive tasks such as reading, writing, and critical thinking easier to do. Berg's experience consulting for a variety of different schools informs his high-energy, hands-on approach to professional learning in instructional technology that focuses on co-learning, collaboration, and practicality. You can visit Jesse at his website, which is www.visualleap.com. That's one word, visualleap.com. So, Jesse, welcome to School Struggles. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. Really excited I'm, to be here. It's, it's my pleasure. I, you know, Jesse, um, again, I, I've known him for a number of years. I've seen him interact. He worked with a lot of kids in our program, and I even featured Jesse in my book, In Shutdown Learner, because we, we are kindred spirits. Even though I don't think of myself necessarily as a visual learner, the theme of Shutdown Learner was Lego kids, kids that are spatial by nature and visually oriented, and therefore I then knew what Jesse was working on at the time, and, and 
and it got him into, into, you know, described in my book as a passionate visual processor type. So, welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Richard. And Jesse has a new book out. Um, it's, it, it's going to be released when, Jess? Is it, um, the official publication date is October 6, 2015. It's very exciting. I have the book in front of me. It looks great. It reads great. And it's called Visual Leap, a step-by-step guide to visual learning. So, Jesse, what prompted you to write this book? Talk, tell us about that. Well, what prompted me to write this book was, I guess I could look at it a few different ways. One was I needed to figure out how to learn myself. And I had a really amazing experience when I was getting a graduate degree in uh, instructional technology, and I saw ideas diagrammed in front of me. It was a very rudimentary and very simplistic kind of a moment in time, but it felt like a key was inserted in my ear and just unlocked my whole brain. And I had never realized that you could just approach learning from a completely different perspective. You didn't have to write things down in the way you'd been taught, but actually you could you could draw ideas out. And to me, uh, that became the really the kernel, the seed of, of why I wrote the book. I had no idea at that moment that I would be writing a book. I just felt like a key to learning had been revealed to me and that it was a very special moment, a definite epiphany in my career as an, as an educator. So that changed you then huh, from that point forward? It completely did. And in fact, uh, I, had, I started out my career in as a, education as a Spanish teacher, and I had wonderful experiences as a Spanish teacher. I loved being a Spanish teacher. But some, some, things of in, uh, some things involving instructional technology showed me the power of technology, and so I became interested in instructional technology. And that was what this program was about at Philadelphia University. However, uh, beyond instructional technology, through that kernel, I really became interested in what I've come to call visual learning and, uh, and exploring how strategies around visual learning could reach multitudes of learners in ways that maybe their traditional education hasn't exactly provided for them. Is that what you mean by visual leap? Can you because the, the name of the book is is visual leap, and I also know that that's your website. How how do you define visual leap? What's your what's your definition of it? Well, visual leap it's, it's, it means kind of two things to me. One is it it is a both a metaphor and it's kind of a prescription. Um, Visual Leap, it stands for a need, a transformation that's needed in education, a need to convert a traditional approach, a didactic approach of teaching to a real problem-solving, student-centric idea where kids are figuring out the information for themselves. Because truly when kids learn, that's a very intimate and personal experience that involves a whole lot of investment and uh, dedication and interest. Some people use the word engagement, and um, uh, so so visual leap means that there's a need to change how we teach from more of a didactic to more of a a, a, a student-centric approach, and that switch has to be visual, and that's that has to be visual. Not and I'm not even talking about visual learning in terms of pictures so much, but the ability to organize an idea, to diagram an idea, to get out in front of it, 
to treat an idea like a puzzle that you solve rather than uh, a list that you create or uh, something that you write based on that list. Um, and then the LEAP stands for, actually I realized this after the fact, it stands for learn, earn, achieve, perform. Because I feel that if you gain independent learning strategies, you will be able to learn, earn, achieve, and perform to your potential. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Now you talk, you also talk about this, you know, the idea of visual inquiry, which I'd like you to define a little bit more too. And you said it in your book. Um, I, this was a quote. You said visual inquiry is at the heart. A metacognitive strategy. That's a, a heady statement, Jess. Tell us about that. Well, visual inquiry. What do you mean by visual inquiry? What does that actually mean? Can you can you put it into really visual terms so I can I think picture I can. I think concretely? I can. I think I can. So we human beings are hardwired to identify patterns and recognize consistencies and inconsistencies in what we see. That's how, that's how we would find prey if we were hunting. That's how we would figure out how to build a tool if we were building a tool. We're going to use our eyes to figure out what's missing and what's the gap and how can we solve that gap. So human beings are really hardwired to look at and analyze information. So the thing is, then I ask myself, how can we leverage this innately human strength, this cognitive strength, to more traditional academic tasks like reading and writing and possibly note-taking and, and even mathematics? And so what I've tried to do in my, my method is to ap approach problems in a way uh, – this sort of puzzle piece mentality where every piece of an idea becomes a, a single little bubble or a single word that, that you kind of put out on a, on a screen. Even if you remember those word magnets that were so popular years ago when you would put those word magnets on your refrigerator and then people mm -hmm. would randomly make senses, it's yeah. almost that idea where when you look at the whole gestalt of the idea that you see in front of you, what patterns do you see emerge? And recognizing that you're looking for patterns to, 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 to illuminate ideas is a process of inquiry. And because this process of inquiry explicitly uses your eyes to kind of relax and see the whole and allow problems to emerge, that drove this idea of visual inquiry. Was that a clear enough explanation? It's a little abstract, but I hope that made sense. No, I think that does make sense. And and then is, does that also explain when you, what, I think you answered it when you mean it's at the heart a metacognitive strategy. A lot of people don't understand that term metacognitive, and half the time I'm not even sure if I get it. So tell me what you what you mean by it, and how well, is it at the heart a metacognitive strategy? Metacognition is thinking about learning, thinking about thinking, and your own ability to to uh, evaluate yourself in the learning process. All right, so, so hold on. So, so, it's, so it's, it's really your, it's your own self-awareness, right, while you're undergoing a thought, some kind of thought process such as reading. Typically, it's, it's, it's you know, either reading comprehension kind of interaction internally as well as maybe something like a word problem, right, where you might be thinking about your own process, correct? 
Absolutely. It's it's that one step removed. You're not it's not just the act of doing the task at hand. It's about the act of thinking about how you are approaching that problem solving. And in metacognition is an act which allows you to understand when you're confused and uh, identify that feeling of confusion and then maybe apply a strategy to deal with that feeling of confusion. So it's that self-awareness in your learning process. And All right, visual so, inquiry. So, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Visual inquiry, when you're looking at ideas, basically put out a few words of an idea in front of you, and then you begin to see how they fit together. This gives you an opportunity to, to decide how, how ideas should be grouped. One of the examples, a very simplistic example that I, I, I use in the book to make a point, is, uh, is a, a brainstorm activity about food. You brainstormed all these food items in two minutes, and you put all those words up on a screen. In a, but in a, in a, using a computer program where those words became draggable. And then you began to group those ideas. And by grouping those ideas, so some people would have the meat group or the protein group, and some people would have the dairy group and the vegetable, etc. But then sometimes you're going to have something that doesn't quite fit, like a cheeseburger. Someone brainstorms food and they brainstorm cheeseburger. But then they realize, well, that doesn't cleanly fit into the protein group or is it a grains group, or if there's vegetables on that cheeseburger, does it fit into the vegetable group? So it causes you to think, and it causes you to think about how you're making decisions and how you're evaluating those ideas. And when you're thinking about how you're evaluating your ideas, you're engaging in critical thinking. And critical thinking is this holy grail in, in learning where, where it puts you in a position to make discoveries and have insightful new ideas. Critical thinking is what teachers are trying to teach kids how to do. But teachers rarely, and I won't say rarely, but it's hard to know exactly what critical thinking looks like. And I think critical I, it, it, thinking it's funny. Looks, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, I think critical thinking looks like that when you become actively involved in deciding how this information fits together, you're thinking critically. All of a sudden, you're deciding. You're making a more sophisticated uh, choices at that moment in time. That's what critical thinking looks like. So, um, so yeah, the holy grail of of, of education. That's pretty funny. I like that. Um, so let's say concretely, I made because I tested a child like this recently who. I'm going back to word problems because I think word problems are effectively some type of, you know, it's like a reading comprehension task in many ways, even though there's some math involved. So let's just say I'm a child who feels at the, when, when presented with this word problem, really at a loss. They have no idea where to start. They don't know what to do. They feel, you know, overwhelmed by it. How would something like this if they were trained to be thinking more so in what you're discussing, help them through that problem? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. There's an example of that exact scenario in my book where uh, I think of a boy, a boy works in a restaurant for a certain amount of hours and he uh, babysits for a certain amount of hours and he makes X amount of dollars. And then he right. also, but in a different case, he does sort of a different amount. So the kids have to determine what's babysitting and what's restaurant work and, 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 and how you can solve for those two different variables. So one of the explicit processes that I teach in the book is how to extract information from a text and make that a discrete piece of data. So if you worked in a restaurant for four hours, plunk, 
the four hours gets plunked on the screen or on your on your on your paper. And then the same thing for babysitting. And in that way, you basically can reduce the amount of text that you're dealing with and and extract the key information. Um, this is this um, deconstruction of an idea. And I use the same method for something that's extremely common in schools now, which is for writing constructed responses, which are paragraphs based on reading samples. I teach kids how to break down the, the writing prompt into a simple diagram, which shows them exactly what they're being asked for, whether it's three examples, and, and, and then which also reveals the topic sentence. So for things like word problems or writing paragraphs, the webbing strategies that I introduce are very practical and directly applicable. Now, you also talk about all right. So wait. So so that so that child would be sort of, in some ways, what I'm hearing and visualizing is a child becoming more more completely engaged and more fully, you know, there are more senses involved at that moment rather than trying to tough out the language in the word problem. That's exactly right. And when you talk about senses involved and completely engaged, you're talking about the learning theory. I, I, sometimes I feel like when I talk about visual learning, it's a little abstract. But I want to be clear. Uh, basically, the method that I teach in the book that I present in step-by-step uh, in a step-by-step -step form in the book is how to diagram an idea, how to create an idea from scratch that you diagram, or how to take the parts of an idea and make them into a cohesive diagram. And those diagrams, in I think the most versatile and useful type of diagram for vi visual thinking is a semantic web. It's basically where you've got a central node in the middle and then it branches out to some a node outside of that at infinitum so they each each web so you each web has sort of a main topic subtopic deta detail sort of a structure and it can have as many branches as is as needed corporate settings call this mind mapping uh school settings usually call this webbing and but the thing is webbing allows the nonlinear thinker and your ADD kids are nonlinear thinkers they are they are whole to part Thinkers, big picture, uh, down to drill. Who, thinkers who drill down and they skip around. That's sort of the nature of this, of this impulsivity. Is that these kids? They're associative thinkers. One idea triggers another idea, which triggers another idea, but in no particular order. The important you, thing you, about the method that I'm teaching is it embraces that nonlinear thinking order. However, it functions like a net which allows the learner to catch those ideas as they have them. And then once they've caught those ideas, they can later, through the process of visual inquiry, see how the, those ideas fit together. This do, is so you, is that tied into the, Is that tied into the, you make this differentiation in the book between what's traditionally called brainstorming versus webstorm is that kind of related to what you're just talking about it is it is related because the uh the webstorm is the method of creating a a web in a nonlinear way that ends up being uh a, a very organized linear structure that you can then use to, as an outline or to write from etc but i'd right. actually like to jump right back real quick to that 
what we were talking about before because the children with ADD and dyslexia and other learning disabilities, actually even on kids on the autism spectrum who are highly visual thinkers, these these kids need structures to organize their thinking. And in many cases, they have working memory deficits. So the amount of time that they can keep an idea afloat in their brain is really pretty short. Um, a lot of the reason why kids with ADHD blurt out is, well, partly it's impulse control, but partly it's the fact that they're going to forget what they thought in two seconds and they know it. So they want to get that idea out there. So by learning how to learning how to do web ideas, diagram ideas, and use the processes in the book, it kind of gives them a way to throw information onto the page and catch it as it occurs, which is one cognitive task. That's this burst mentality. But then later, when that burst is complete and that energy level subsides, the student can then step back and look at what they kind of visually blurted out onto a screen and begin to see where the patterns emerge and to fit that idea together. In fitting that idea together, they'll learn what they're clear about and they will learn what they're not clear about. And they'll learn what is irrelevant in their idea, which can then be deleted. So these are really very powerful tools for for critical thinking. And, and, and it's also is explicitly metacognitive as students begin to think, oh, that's maybe extraneous, that detail doesn't make sense, or I don't understand this, and I see that now. So that's why... Um, does it, in, in does it take a long time for the student to internalize, Jess? Does, do you find that there's effectively this you know, learning curve even though people may, kids or adults may get it on, on an intuitive level to make this more of a habit where they really start mapping out their ideas, it would seem to me that it takes time and practice. Well, anything takes time and practice, Richard. Um, however, that being said, I have never, I've never worked with kids with learning strategies that they find more intuitive and get more quickly. Um, for instance, uh, I did a workshop uh, for kids. It was a, at, a, at a high school last spring, and they'd never had no experience with these methods, visual learning, mind mapping, none of it. And a student came up afterwards and he said, I've always felt slow, and I always had to work so hard to learn, and I always thought I was dumb. But now I realize I think more visually, and and now I think... I can succeed in college. This was a high school senior who'd always felt he felt anxiety about his abilities, and he never felt intelligent. And within an hour and a half workshop, he felt like he could succeed in college. So th- these methods work. They match how we naturally think, I think, to a very unique degree because they allow you to be birdshot, a birdshot thinker, a scatterbrain, and yet have the tools right in front of you to organize those ideas. So, in fact, it's, it's ex- I find this to be an extremely intuitive method that kids just aren't shown how to do. Do you, do you feel that it has to be done 
through a technology such as a software program, which I know that you've recommended in the past, do you or do you feel that they can also do it by you know in some ways old-fashioned kinds of you know mapping it out paper and pencil or you know on the page that that type of thing? So you know what I'm asking? Does it? It doesn't have to be just technology, does it? Absolutely not. In fact, there's real benefits to to doing applying these methods uh, with paper and pencil. I'm looking at my desk as we're speaking, Richard, and I'm looking at about 14 uh, diagrams, mind maps, and what would only I think anybody looking at my desk uh, and looking at how I take notes would have to think that I'm crazy. Um, however, because there really is no linear order to it, my notes don't start at the top left corner of the page and they don't end at the bottom right. They, um, they defy those rules. And that's one of the things. I, I teach a note-taking strategy, and I think it's Chapter 10, which is a very different note-taking strategy. And one of the reasons it's so different is because it, it breaks our whole concept of what the written page is, which is, going back to a teacher term, it's a, we have a schema of what a written page is, which starts from all of our experience learning from our earliest ages, where a page starts at the top left and goes to the bottom right. But the minute you kind of turn your page sideways and you start in the middle <laughs> with a word in the middle, mm-hmm. then you've really effectively broken your whole internal structure for what a page is supposed to be and in breaking that you freed yourself to diagram your idea in a very fluid way that has much more to do with how you feel and what you hear than than these constraints of a traditional page there's a really an amazing outcome because of that too i, I um it, which is that note taking my way uh is I've measured this uh, with kids. Kids write between 20% and uh, or less of the words that they usually write in traditional notes. Because a lot of times when kids take notes, they put words like the and in and if in Mm -hmm. their notes. And in my method, they just, they, they don't even, it doesn't even occur to them to write those those words because no part of their note taking is about replicating a sentence mm-hmm. it's about it's about capturing an idea so we eliminate about uh about 5 or 6 of the 9 parts of speech almost instantaneously with with no effort so almost effortlessly you stop writing articles prepositions even adjectives and most verbs you're almost left with just nouns and if you only write the nouns, you're only writing the keywords. So, so it's, a, eliminate... it's, a, it's a method that could be used for both listening while you're in a lecture, say, in a classroom, as well as uh, while you're reading. Both, both could be working with your method, right? Absolutely. So I think technology has some real advantages in some cases. But, under, but more importantly, this is a learning strategy, this is a, and it's a universal learning strategy. Which, which I think benefits anybody, but it especially benefits kids with uh, who are more visual, more spatial, more uh, who have working memory deficits. But you absolutely can do this method with paper and pencil or with technology. Then, depending on the setting, one may offer uh, benefits uh, over the other, and vice versa. Yeah, I think that you're right that it, that it really all 
kids, and then by extension, which you said it in the book, all people, adults, professionals, can use this kind of methodology. But I also think that it does, as you just said, lend itself to those kids who traditionally are struggling with the more, you know, uh, straightforward kind of reading, spelling, writing approaches, lectures, uh, they're shut down learner brain kids, the Lego brain kids who really need a different, different style, different experience. You know, what happens, I talk about this in the book a little bit, Richard, is that when kids in a class were taking notes, they, they're, they're, they're doing two kinds of listening simultaneously. One is they're listening to what the teacher's saying. But the second thing they're trying to do is remember what the teacher said 30 seconds ago, which is what they're trying to write. Yeah. So in one ear, they're trying to hold on to new information, and in the other ear, they're trying to uh, – well, they're trying to uh, – remember it and then get that out to their hands and that is really just too many things to ask a brain to do at one time yeah what what software programs do you would you recommend either ones that you can get directly online or ones that you might purchase you know ones that you've had experience with over the years what might you tell parents in terms of guiding them on on what's out there well an oldie but a goodie, and it's still very, very uh, common in schools today, is uh, certainly Inspiration. Inspiration software is a diagramming tool, and the neat thing about Inspiration is it directly fundamental to this software program is any diagram that you create, whether it's a tree diagram or a web diagram or a mind map, it will convert that, not just convert, it will toggle between an outline view and a, and a visual diagram view, so you can use you can brainstorm visually and organize your idea visually, which is very conducive to all these learners that we're talking about. But then, when you want to write, you know, uh, the diagram might not be the best jumping off point to to the writing process. So then you toggle over to the outline view, and then there you have it. You see your outline. You can refine your outline, dragging stuff up or down, and then that becomes the valuable th uh, step for uh, for writing. Um, so that's a software that would be for um, desktops or laptops. Uh, then uh, there are some really interesting web-based uh, tools which I'm enjoying right now a whole lot. And one of them is this uh, neat little web to tool called MindMup, M-I-N-D-M-U-P. And um, it's, oh, it's free and it's online and it sounds it's cute it's a cute little mm -hmm. it's mind mop and it's cute now inspiration also has an app for your uh an app for your um for your iPad uh but those are two really good ones uh mind mop and inspiration and beyond that i mean there's a host of them once you start getting um idea right. meant uh, there's a we could get into a big long list I think some of the key criteria when you're looking for a good mind mapping tool or a visualizing tool is that it's got to be really easy to use. It's mm -hmm. got to somehow flow in its use with how you naturally think. And uh, if you can obtain that, then I think you're halfway there. If it's wonky and if you have to concentrate on the program, then that's no good. Right, right. I think that that's that's really true. And a, a lot of times, I find, especially you know, and I've really enjoyed using inspiration over the years. In fact, I think I wrote one of my books using inspiration. That's kind of doing exactly what you said. You know, putting all the ideas down, um, and and putting them, you know, and then moving them around, which is a lot of fun. And you can kind of see how things can take shape. Uh, I think it's a great tool, there, but you know, but I think it that it takes, sometimes I. Well, I'm sorry. You said a mouthful there. You said it was fun. 
you were playing yeah. with your idea like a puzzle. Instead yeah. of this sort of onerous ordering of ideas yeah. to write your thesis statement and get your details and your supporting yeah. evidence, which feels weighty and heavy. And and also it's very difficult if you're a nonlinear thinker and you know, you understand that there's an idea from later in the paper, but you but you're not up to that piece of paper, then what do you do with that idea? Where do you put it? You've just said learning was more fun when you had a chance to play with your idea. And yeah, that's, you can I really, think, it's, it's, yeah, you can really, it's, it's, it's fun, folks, to move ideas around. You know, you can put them above, below, and then you connect them. It can get, as you suggested earlier, with, you know, we ADD types, a little, a little crazy. <laughs> you know, maps lead to maps, you know, webs lead to webs, you know, it gets a little nutty. <laughs> they don't use a lot of words, but they take up a lot of screen real estate. That is yeah. for sure. Yeah. Now, as we're winding down a little bit, um, how do you see teachers, educators adjusting their styles with with these approaches? What are the things that they can be thinking about and doing in the classroom or with their assignments? Well, in a very tangible way, Richard, I think that I think that using one of my strategies called uh, the reverse mind map can basically eliminate the need for PowerPoints. And it can put the onus of learning on the student rather than the teacher. I say this to a lot of teachers. Boy, how long does it take you to make a PowerPoint? They always say a long time. And I say, boy, you had an incredible learning experience in the process. You thought about what should come first. You thought about what were the key points. You found graphics that supported your evidence. You found incredible details. You have had a tremendous learning experience creating this PowerPoint. But now in contrast for the student, what did they have to do? They are the passive recipients of that page turner. And so in a way, I, I try to, I, I'm exaggerating this, of course, but it, it, you really steal an opportunity to learn from a child when you've organized the information for them. So in contrast to a PowerPoint that would have an organized set of slides, I would, in contrast, I would put a bunch of that information on a screen and ask the kids to, what do you see in here? What do you see happening here? What's the organization? What groups do you see? How do you see this idea taking shape? And as the teacher, instead of saying, you know, on the ba the battle of uh, – the Battle of Midway, I'm saying, what do you see here? Very different. You're facilitating critical thinking, and you're engaging students to get involved in that material as opposed to telling them what happened. So I think simply by moving to a web storm strategy or reverse mind map strategy, you can save yourself as a teacher a lot of time in making PowerPoints because you can simply stop doing it. And in the process, you can put all of that critical thinking in the lap of your students. So I think that's one directly applicable, quickly, quickly applicable classroom uh, uh, transformation that can occur using uh, one of the methods in the book. Great, great idea. I like it. Reverse mind map. Jesse, let's, let's wind down um, with the three laws of webbing, which you talk about uh, briefly, the three laws of webbing, so that people can take those home with them. What, what, do you, what do you 
talking so about. So I here. talked about a web being something that has like a central node, like a, a word in a, with a bubble around it in the middle of your paper, and then a, a branching outwards. So students, one thing that students love about webbing, and one of the things that they love about visual learning, the way that I teach it, I think, is that uh, it has it has three rules with no exceptions. And you ask a kid how many things in school have three rules and no exceptions, they get pretty excited when they hear about this. This is not going to be hard. <laughs> so number one is you want one idea per bubble, one word or at most one idea per bubble. Okay. Then these arrows that connect these bubbles uh, always will go outwards. They never go inwards. So from the center, uh, from the center bubble out. Center bubble out, and from the next bubble out to the next bubble, but you never have a bubble, uh, an arrow going inwards. Because, because, because if you think about this, a web as being a visual outline, then it still must follow the rules of the outline, which is main topic, subtopic, detail. So the central bubble is the main topic, the next bubble out would be the subtopic, and the third bubble out would be the detail. So the ideas must always go main topic, subtopic, detail, arrow from the middle out to the next, out to the next, and never inwards because that would destroy all of that very elegant, useful logic that you've created by, uh, by grouping your information in that way. And the final law is that you can never make a loop. Like you never have a bubble, a bubble that has an arrow over to another bubble, so that you made a loop, and uh, that that forces you to make some decisions about how you're organizing information, and um, from a visual standpoint, and from a more linear standpoint, it, it, that would destroy the logic of the web. That gets a little wonky. That explanation. <laughs> the last I, one got a little wonky. I agree. The, last, the first two are good. The last one's a little wonky. I agree. You know what? If you see it in the book, it'll make sense. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's it's hard to describe a picture, and uh, that's right, what that's I found true. myself doing. Yeah, well, no, you know, the, what's interesting about this interview is, you know, his, the book is loaded with examples from a visual point of view, and here we are, you know, obviously we're having a conversation, and we're trying, I'm trying to visualize what you're saying and picture what you're saying so that I understand it better, but it's, it is hard to, to have all these things translated over, you know, bubbles and, you know, loops, and what does he mean by that? So, you know, I would encourage people to, to find that in his book. Jesse, uh, final note, what's the hope for the book? What do you, what do you want to accomplish? Well, well, I really want to. Teachers are trying to differentiate instruction. They're trying to meet the needs of these diverse learners in their group, and they're trying to engage in critical thinking strategies more and more so with the Common Core and just with a greater emphasis on on critical thinking rather than sort of a regurgitation of information. I think my book makes that easy to do and very clear because it offers step by step examples. Um, I work with schools and districts to model these methods and to teach teachers how to use them on a very regular basis. That's what I do for a living is work with schools and districts and teachers and to, to a lesser degree but still a degree students. So my hope is that my hope is that the book my my hope is really Richard that the book helps a lot of people learn how to learn and learn how to think independently. And gain confidence in their own abilities to achieve. As you found with your Lego kids, these students often suffer from uh, 
they debil they see how they have debilitating school experiences and they lack intellectual confidence. And yet, many of these learners are the most creative kids in our communities, in our societies. These are the kids that, in a way, because of their creativity, are the best equipped to make the discoveries and take the novel solution and find the way to achieve. Yet, these are also the students who don't succeed in school. So my hope is that for this valuable, precious, important demographic of students, I can provide them with a learning strategy that helps them to realize their own intellectual potential and feel confident and joyful doing it. Great. A great goal. And I support that entirely. <laughs> I certainly do. We both have had similar missions in our professional life. Uh, Jesse, how, how do uh, people get a hold of you? Well, my website is probably the best way, www.visualleap.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Visual Leap. I try to keep it simple. Everything is Visual Leap. If you either Google Jesse Berg or Visual Leap, you're going to get to me pretty quickly. And if you Google me, just note I'm not the hypnotist and I'm not the motorcycle driver. <laughs> those, guys, those guys are pretty popular, right. too. Well, Jesse, I knew you'd be a great guest, and I, I really appreciate your coming on. I, I have always known you to be a passionate educator, and you held up, held up your end. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so um, much for having me. I would again. encourage people to get Jesse's book. It's called Visual Leap, a step-by-step -step guide to visual learning. Um, I'm sure it will be available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble's website. So um, get a hold of it, gang. And I want to thank people for listening. And you can visit my website, which is www.shutdownlearner.com. And also remember to visit thecoffeeclutch.com, which is are the, you know, the host of this our radio show. So, Jesse, thank you very much, and we'll see you again, folks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, Richard. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jesse. Bye-bye.